kill you. Yeah, what's wrong with the beer we got? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's Monday, it's a little bit after 6 o'clock. Welcome to another edition of Auntie Nanny. Uh, chock full of all the good news you've come to expect. <laughs> um, with me this evening is the very best producer money can't buy. Hi, Barry. How are you this evening? I'm doing good today. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So, no genie tonight. She's um, prancing about the big city of Erie, Pennsylvania. Good luck. I bet she's going she's gonna to shut that town down. Well, she's going to come back and complain about all them city folk. <laughs> she might. Uh, I don't even know where to start. Uh, the news has just been so good. Um, let's see. Um, how about we start with a little story about Berkeley, California? And it it is actually a little story, so it's probably a decent one to start with. It's not too long, and, you know, we all know that California has issues. (laughs) Really? (laughs) I know. (sighs) Okay, so Berkeley, California is going to require cell phone health warnings. The City Council of Berkeley, California, voted Tuesday night to pass a cell phone right-to-know law requiring health warnings with the purchase of a cell phone. The proposal was approved by a vote of 9-0. to zero. When it goes into effect this summer, it will be the first safety ordinance of its kind in the country. Cell phone retailers will be required to include a city-prepared notice along with the purchase of a cell phone informing consumers of the minimum separation distance a cell phone should be held from the body. The Federal Communications Commission recommends keeping your phone 5 to 25 millimeters away, depending on the model, to limit radio frequency exposure to safe levels. If you carry or use your phone in your pants or shirt pocket or tucked into a bra when the phone is on and connected to a wireless network, you may exceed the federal guidelines for exposure to radio frequency radiation, the Berkeley Safety Notice reads. This potential risk is greater for children. Refer to the instructions in your phone or use a manual for information about how to use your phone safety, safely. 
The new law could take effect in July, but may face legal challenges. The Cellular Telephone Industries Association says the law violates the First Amendment because it would force wireless retailers to disseminate speech they may not agree with. In a letter to the council members Tuesday, Gerard Keenan with CITA said the forced speech is misleading and alarmist because it would cause consumers to take away the message that cell phones are dangerous and cause breast, testicular, or other cancers. In 2011, the World Health Organization's International Agency for Research on Cancer classified radio frequencies like that emitted by cell phones as possibly carcinogenic to humans. Many scientists have researched possible links between cell phone use and risk of cancer or other diseases, but results have been contradictory, and experts say more long-term studies are needed. The National Cancer Institute says there is currently no evidence that non-ionizing radiation from cell phones increases cancer risk. While this research continues, some health activists and consumers have been campaigning for more stringent cell phone safety regulations. Lawmakers in at least six states have also considered warnings to address cell phone radiation concerns. In 2010, the city of San Francisco approved regulations mandating cell phone retailers display the specific absorption rate or amount of radio frequency energy absorbed by the body for each phone it sold, but it was challenged in court by the Cellular Telephone Industries Association, which claimed the law would confuse consumers by implying lower radiation levels are safer. And the the ordinance, good God, was thrown out. Now, the Berkeley proposal seeks to address concerns that even as cell phones become ubiquitous in our lives, many people remain unaware of their basic safety recommendations. An April 30th study funded by the California Brain Tumor Association found that 70% of Berkeley adults did not know about the FCC's minimum separation distance. And 82% said they would like information about how far the phone should be kept from the user's body. In the last seven months, Berkeley has passed several other first-in-the-nation consumer laws, including an ordinance requiring climate change labels on gas pumps and a tax on sugary soda. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, There we go. The inconclusive science is uh, giving us legislation again. Well, I mean, that's how they do it. Well, the fact that they're, um, you know, oh, you should hold your cell phone a certain distance away, blah, blah, blah. The (laughs) fact that you're walking about through an invisible sea of uh, electromagnetic radiation, yeah, that's not going to affect you, but your cell phone. (laughs) (laughs) TV stations, radio stations. All of them are broadcasting much higher, broader spectrum radiation than your phone does. <laughs> well, I mean, it's kind of ridiculous to me. Um, they're acting like, did you ever, did you ever see the film Johnny Mnemonic? Um, yes. Okay. Unfortunately. I, I, I know a lot of people didn't like it. I kind of did, although it was pretty fucked up. Um, but all of those people got sick from being exposed to too much, like, Radio waves, radiation, computers. You know, they're acting like that's what's happening now. I don't think it is, but okay. Um, Shouldn't we be concerned about... The species evolved in heavily EM'd um, environment. Every time the sun has sunspots, Mm -hmm. the amount of electromagnetic radiation you're exposed to goes up a hundredfold. 
<laughs> we involved in this shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's ridiculous. It's more of the inconclusive science and it's really sad because this kind of thing shuts down entire industries. And if you ever yeah, I mean, wonder why so many businesses need a lobbyist, it's because of shit like this. Yeah. This is activist-driven legislation for no reason. And we see a lot of that with vaping, too, I think. You know? A lot of the legislation aimed at us... Oh, my, Michael Morris is talking about wind generators. Nah, the waves from wind generators aren't a problem. It's the subharmonic sounds that are apparently yeah. bad for you. Yeah, no, those, those, the, the harmonics are god awful. Yes. People go That's crazy from being exposed to that. the hell out of your body. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, if I were in California, there's a lot of things I'd be more concerned about. Uh, mostly, I'd be Ban concerned about. Ban hmm? the stand. Yeah, I was going to say mostly I'd be concerned about my um, exposure to unhealthy levels of glance. Yeah. <laughs> Oh boy, should should I start with the wonderful thing David Cameron said? Which one? <laughs> he said a lot in the last couple of weeks. Can you see what I've highlighted? Yeah. Oh, that one. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Britain is too tolerant and should interfere more in people's lives, says David Cameron. Britain is too passively tolerant and should not leave people to live their own lives as they please just because they obey the law, David Cameron has said. At the National Security Council today, Mr. Cameron unveiled a series of measures that he said would crack down on people holding minority extremist views that differed from Britain's consensus. For too long, we have been a passively tolerant society, saying to our citizens, as long as you obey the law, we will leave you alone, he said. It's often meant we have stood neutral between different values and that's helped foster a narrative of extremism and grievance speaking on bbc4 radio today however the home secretary theresa may said that tolerance and rule of law were british values the measures are part of a bigger picture strategy which will also have as a key part of it actually promoting our british values our values of democracy rules of law tolerance and acceptance of different faiths she said she said the measures would focus on seeking to undermine the very values. She said the measures would focus on seeking to undermine the very values that make us a great country to live in. Ms. May first set out the principles presented by Mr. Cameron before the general election, but was prevented from bringing them forward by the Liberal Democrats. The package of powers first proposed in March would allow courts to force a person to send their tweets and Facebook posts to the police for approval. Oh, fuck. Ofcom will have new powers to pressurize broadcasters, which show content deemed extreme, while the Charity Commission would be mandated to scrutinize charities who misappropriate funds. The Prime Minister's comments about tolerance were met with criticisms on social media. <laughs> That's really politely put. I didn't yeah. see criticisms. I saw insults. Um, <laughs> He's a jackass. Uh, Yes. Um, what I find, what what lots of people were pointing out was, what, we should crack down on these like minority views, like yours, because only 30% of the country actually like you and voted for your craziness. <laughs> <laughs> That's minority. More people actually 
percentage-wise voted for Labour, but the Conservatives won. Mm. Mm, yeah, it's, it's not rigged. It's totally well, not no, rigged. It's, you it's get what you first vote past for. The post. <laughs> first past the post. It's a useless voting system. Well, but, yeah. you know, none of the voting systems are good. Honestly, I don't know. Well, proper if... proportional representation... Um, Possibly the least offensive of them, but yeah, that means. I guess. But then, not then, you have difficulty that you're not voting for specific candidates; you're voting for parties. But that's what most people do anyway. So. I don't know that that's true. Things that the people who go, oh, screw this! I'm not voting at all. Look at this. It's well, a yeah, sea of idiots. I mean, <laughs> everybody goes on about the huge swing the SNP had in Scotland. That's because Scotland has some of the highest voting rates in the UK. Yeah. You know, some then, places had 70% turnout in Scotland. It's unheard yeah. of in the Western world. Well, <laughs> you know, and it's also not coerced. You're not forced to vote. I mean, Australia's no. got a law. You've got to vote. You don't oh, have yeah. a choice. Uh, I remember my great-uncle was on holiday over here. and uh -huh. They called a snap election in Australia. <laughs> and he had to sh cut short his visit to Scotland so he'd go all the way back to London to vote <laughs> at the embassy. Yes, oh, the FDA. In Australia, if you don't vote, they put you in jail. In jail, yes. Do people really not know that? It's, you know, I, well, I guess it's not, it's not well known. About a lot. No. They, they talk more about the racist TV presenters in Australia. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's that's one of their real problems over there. Um, racist uh, not... TV presenters. Oh, sure. <laughs> that wasn't that what I was going week? with, but yeah. No, I, you can't force somebody to do something they don't want to do, and that's the way Australia's headed. Yeah. So, I talked a little bit about David Cameron, and <laughs> I, I fall decidedly in the middle of just about every topic. So, I thought since I, I got the good BBC view about David Cameron's uh, comments, I would get a leftist point of view from Glenn Greenwald about <laughs> David Cameron's comments. And uh, I, I agree with him so much. Um, greatest threat to free speech comes not from terrorism, but from those claiming to fight it. We learned recently from Paris that the Western world is deeply and passionately committed to free expression and ready to march and fight against attempts to suppress it. It's a really good thing, since there are all sorts of severe suppression efforts underway in the West, perpetrated not by the terrorists, but by the Western politicians claiming to fight them. One of the most alarming examples comes, not at all surprisingly, from the UK government, which is currently agitating for new counterterrorism powers, including plans for extremism disruption orders designed to restrict those trying to radicalize young people. Here are the powers which the British freedom fighters and democracy protectors are seeking. They would include a ban on broadcasting and a requirement to submit to police in advance any proposed publication on the web and social media or in print. The bill will also contain plans for banning orders for extremist organizations which seek to undermine democracy or use hate speech in public places, but it will fall short of banning on grounds of provoking hatred. It will also contain new powers to close premises, including mosques, where extremists seek to influence others. 
the powers of the Charity Commission to root out charities that misappropriate funds towards extremism and terrorism will also be strengthened, but not just plain misappropriation of funds because, fuck, we don't care about that. In essence, advocating any idea or working for any political outcomes regarded by the British politicians as extremist, um, and that would be the people who would like to be free, Scotland to be free from Britain as well, I'm assuming, um, will not only be a crime, but can be physically banned in advance. Uh, basking in his election victory, Prime Minister David Cameron unleashed this Orwellian decree to explain why new thought police powers are needed. For too long, we have been a passively tolerant society, saying to our citizens, as long as you obey the law, we will leave you alone. It is not enough for British suspects to merely obey the law. They must refrain from believing in or expressing ideas in which Her Majesty's government dislikes. If all that sounds menacing, tyrannical, and even fascist to you, and really, how could it not? Extremism disruption orders. You, <laughs> there's a video. We're not going to play that. Um, but they're talking to Theresa May. Unless, do you want to play it? Well, I can if you want to. <laughs> okay. I'll wait for it to load. Sorry about that. Um, uh, Tory Home Secretary. The reason for doing this, John, when you talk about tolerance and intolerance, I mean, there are people out there, sadly, who are seeking to divide us. Uh, we are a government of one nation. We want to bring people together to ensure we are living together as one society. But there are those who are trying to promote hatred and intolerance, seeking to divide us into a, into a them and us and undermine our British values. And what we are proposing is a bill which will have certain measures within it, uh, measures such as introducing banning orders for groups and, and disruption orders for individuals, um, for those who are out there actively trying to promote this hatred and intolerance, which can lead to division in our society and undermines our British values. But it will be part of a bigger picture, a strategy which will also have as a key part of it actually promoting our British values, our values of democracy, rule of rule of law, tolerance and, and uh, understanding, you know, acceptance of different faiths. And freedom of speech, an essential prerequisite of a tolerant and decent society. And if you ban groups of people from getting together and talking about the things that worry them about the way our society is heading, don't you become a part of it? No, well, first of all, I would say that your description of what we're proposing to do is, is not right. Well, you're talking about talking, banning groups of certain not, groups of people getting together. We're not talking about banning groups of people getting together who are simply talking about problems in society or what they perceive as issues that need to be addressed. So when do they step we over are the talking, edge? We are talking about the uh, extremism of all sorts, Islamist extremism, but also other forms of extremism like neo-Nazism, that is seeking to promote hatred, that is seeking to divide our society, that is seeking to undermine the very values that make us a great country to live in, that make us this great pluralistic society. And how do you divide a society then? Let's assume, for instance, that a group of people um, put together a meeting at which they expressed views about homosexuality that you or I might perhaps find repugnant. Would they be dividing society? What we're talking about here is an extremism that is 
that has an impact that is divided, divisive, that is trying to undermine well, that would our be values, divisive, wouldn't but it? Is, that is trying to undermine our values. But the reason that we're doing this is, first of all, because we do need, I think, to ensure that we are together as one society. We are one nation. We are uh, working Speaking to with ensure one that voice? We, well, there will be different views within that nation. Of course, there will be different views. Indeed. And nobody is suggesting that different views cannot be expressed. But one of the reasons for looking at this issue of extremism is the path down which it can lead people. And what we can see often is that this uh, extremist preaching, this, this uh, message of hatred, this message of intolerance can actually lead down a path of radicalisation. And what I'm trying to get you to define is, is at what point it strays into that area, at what point it doesn't become just a disagreement with you or me or the bloke next door or the woman next door. It becomes something that should worry us to the extent that it should be banned. That's what I'm trying to get at. At what point does it qualify for being banned? And obviously when we introduce the legislation which has these banning orders, one of the tasks in that legislation will be to ensure that we have the definitions uh, you don't properly so that they can... Well, we have a definition of extremism, which we have in our extremism strategy. But, but you seem to be saying you'll know it when you see it, which is a bit no, unsatisfactory, we, I'm not isn't saying it? we know it when we see it. John, the whole process of introducing legislation in this country is that actually you start off with the principle of what we want to do, which is to ensure that we can promote British values, the values so that unite us as a Society. promoting British values. You can't have legislation to promote British values, can no, you? A we... law that says these are our values and we and if you don't agree with them then well well what? You go to jail? I mean how do you but, promote British values but, in a legalistic sense? I think I suspect that there are many people listening to this programme who feel that actually we haven't as a society in the past been positive enough about the values that unite us as a society. What does that mean? That's, um, well, for, it, forgive me for using the phrase again, but that's a bit woolly, isn't it? Positive enough. I mean, I could run out into the street now, and you couldn't say, look, these are the values we all stand for. Wonderful, wonderful. Somebody else would come along and say, rubbish, I believe in something different. Now, at what point, what I'm, and what I'm really puzzled by is how you get to define the, the, the line. You draw the line at which you've crossed over that line and it's unacceptable, legally unacceptable. Well, that is, if I may, that's, I mean, the one part of what we're doing is the legislation which has the banning orders, the disruption orders, the ability to close premises. And that will For have very what? clearly, For very clearly what? within it, will have definitions of extremism. We've set out a definition of extremism at the moment, but we'll, we'll very clearly set out in the legislation how those banning orders will operate. So what is what extremism? Because but, we have loads of laws that ban, for instance, hate speech, all sorts of laws. You obviously can't incite violence. That is a criminal offence. You go to jail for it. What, what is it that we are trying to ban? Well, we are trying to deal with those uh, situations, with those in our society who are actively operating or promoting an extremism, which is undermining. I know you, you say that promoting our values is something that you say is, is woolly, but actually well, what it's people valuable, are trying course, to do... But it's, it, but it's well, thank you. It is, clearly it is, it's woolly it because is. It, it could mean anything, couldn't it? I mean, depending on who you are. If, for instance, you believe in gay marriage, fine, that is a value for you. If you don't believe in gay marriage, you're absolutely entitled not to believe in gay marriage, and presumably you would still be entitled to say, I don't believe in gay marriage. Of I think I, I think it damages society. Uh, yes, but, but that, not, so that would offend not, your values. But what we're talking about is the the key values that, un, that undermine that uh, underline our society and are being undermined by the extremists. 
values like democracy, a belief in democracy, a belief in the rule of law, a belief in tolerance uh, for other people, a, a, a equality, an acceptance of Horror. other people's faiths and religions. We all have... The, one of the great things about living in the United Kingdom is that we all have a right to live our lives as we choose to live our lives. But we also have a responsibility to respect other people's right to live their lives as they choose but to on, live. On a... And what we are... Sorry, John, hmm. I think this is important. What we are seeing is people undermining what I would call those fundamental values of democracy and the rule of law and of tolerance of, of, uh, of other people and doing that in a way which can lead people down the route of radicalisation and then obviously can lead them right. into, into violence and into taking action to but try it, to undermine our society. But it's entirely possible, isn't it, that if you don't ban those people but instead, as it were, allow them to hide in plain sight of everybody, it will, it will lead you to those who actually do want to break the law, who do want to kill people in pursuit of their aims. And it might be counterproductive what you're trying to do. No, I think, I mean, what we're trying to do is, uh, will be part of a wider strategy, which is about ensuring that we can, on the one hand, introduce this legislation, which we're talking about today, with these banning orders in it, but also there are other parts to this strategy. There will be a, a programme to help isolated communities, a programme to actively promote our British values. Looking at issues like entryism in, in bodies, I mean, I think many people were deeply concerned when they saw the issue that arose, that what was called the Trojan horse, in the schools in Birmingham, at the attempts to, to change young minds that was taking place as a result of that. People were concerned about that, and we need to ask, ask the question about how that happened and what we can do in order to ensure that it doesn't happen again. This is, this is about ensuring that we have and maintain what keeps us together and what makes this a great country to live in, in our pluralistic values. A, a, a word, if I may, about something else. Um, Front-page lead of the Times today, written a piece uh, for The Times, which says you, uh, the Times says you are getting tough over the fate of med migrants, as they put it. Um, and you want an opt-out from Britain taking a, a share of the quota of people who are, uh, who, who've left uh, try, trying to find a... Right, that's the end of the bit about... Uh... <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, this, that's this my new is, government. <laughs> this stuff is painful to listen to and to watch. Um, uh, when, when pressed on what extremism means, specifically when something crosses the line from legitimate disagreement into criminal extremism, she evades the question completely, repeatedly invoking creepy slogans about the need to stop those who seek to undermine our British values and instead ensure we are together as one society, one nation. So these these are people who would have loved Mr. Adolf. Well, I, I put one of the photos that's been going around in chat. Yeah. <laughs> David Cameron, slightly photoshopped. <laughs> he does Tries quite closely resemble the other person. Well, his, his threat, viewpoint certainly does. Yeah, threats to free speech can come from lots of places, but right now the greatest threat by far in the West to ideals of free expression is coming not from radical Muslims, but from the very Western governments claiming to fight them. The increasingly unhinged, Cheney-sounding governments, the UK, Australia, France, New Zealand, and Canada, joining the U.S., have a seemingly insatiable desire to curve freedoms in the name of protecting them. Prosecuting people for Facebook postings critical of Western militarism or selling 
radical cable channels, imprisoning people for radical tweets, banning websites containing ideas they dislike, seeking and obtaining new powers of surveillance and detention for those people, usually, though not exclusively, Muslim citizens, hold and espouse views deemed by those governments to be radical. Anticipating Prime Minister Cameron's new anti-extremist bill to be unveiled in the Queen's speech, University of Bath professor Bill Durie, Bill Duray <laughs> said Early. that the window for free speech has now been firmly shut just a few months after so many political leaders walked in supposed solidarity for murdered cartoonists in France. Actually, there has been a long, broad, sustained assault in the West on core political liberties, specifically due process, free speech, and free assembly, perpetrated not by radical Muslims, but by those who endlessly claim to fight them. Sadly and tellingly, none of that has triggered parades or marches or widespread condemnation by Western journalists and pundits. But for those who truly believe in the principles of free expression, as opposed to pretending to when it allows one to bash the other tribe, these are the assaults that need marches and protests. It's pretty well, fucking bad. Yeah. I mean, there have been um, marches and protests. Um, Anonymous have uh, marched and <laughs> protest quite a lot. <laughs> Yeah. Just the press isn't reporting it. <laughs> well, there's um, there's actually on Facebook, there's a Facebook group called Revolution News, if you're at all interested. They were the ones that um, I got the story from about those, those uh, hologram marches in Spain when they yeah. criminalized protests. This is a really bad time, and I can't tell whether it's because of coming economic collapse that things are so wonky politically. Well, but I mean, it's, global it's warming everywhere. is no longer it's a big issue. It's fucking everywhere. They're criminalizing protests. They're criminalizing free speech, free thought, if being different. If the West different. gets any more right wing, right, right, the whole earth's just going to topple off its axis <laughs> and disappear. You know, I, I, off into space. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what the answer is, Oops. but I do know that... Sorry, there's a connection if, glitch. If a person can't stand an idea, if a government cannot stand an idea that is different from what they claim they're all about, then your society is um, in trouble. John, your society, my society, terrible. all of them. So, oh, you're, you're and not, I said I would talk about. Hmm? You're not hmm? broadcasting. The connection's down. It's down. Oh yes. no. Hang on. Shit. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Reconnecting. Uh, okay. <laughs> Hold on. Oh. Is it connecting yet? Nope. No, not connecting. Uh, Mixler. Oh, I think it's <sighs> back up. Are are we back? Yes. Okay. okay so can okay. So I'm assuming people can hear us. Um, I think the last thing I said was if a government can't stand ideas that are different from what they claim they're about, then your society is in real trouble. And it's not just your society, it's, it's my society, it's all of them. Yeah. 
and the, this is a global thing. Um, yes. And generally speaking, when this happens, when you're marching towards totalitarianism, it, it has an economic aspect to it as well. It's fucking scary. It's, uh, it's like living in a less free time. Okay. I said I would talk about the TTP. Here's the TTP. You can't read the TTP, but huge corporations can. Okay, so this was from the other day when the Senate tried to fast-track the TTP. Who can read the text of the TTP? Not you. It's classified. Even members of Congress can only look at it one section at a time in the Capitol's basement without most of their staff or the ability to keep notes. But there's an exception if you're part of one of 28 U.S. government-appointed trade advisory committees providing advice to the U.S. negotiators. These committees, with the most access to what's going on in the negotiation, are 16 industry trade advisory committees whose members include AT&T, General Electric, Apple, Dow Chemical, Nike, Walmart, and the American Petroleum Institute. The TTP is an international trade agreement currently being negotiated between the U.S. and 11 other countries, including Japan, Australia, Chile, Singapore, and Malaysia. Among other things, it could strengthen copyright laws, limit efforts at food safety reform, and allow domestic policies to be contested by corporations in an international court. Its impact is expected to be sweeping, yet venues for public input hardly exist. Industry Trade Advisory Committees, or ITACs, are cousins to Federal Advisory Committees, FACs, <laughs> like the National Petroleum Council that I wrote about. However, ITACs are functionally exempt from any of the transparency rules that generally govern Federal Advisory Committees, and their communications are largely shielded from FOIA requests in order to protect third-party commercial and or financial information from disclosure. And even if for some reason they wanted to tell someone what they're doing, members must sign non-disclosure agreements so they can't compromise government negotiating goals. Finally, they also escape requirements to balance their industry members with representatives from public interest groups. The result is that the Energy and Energy Service Committees include the National Mining Association and America's Natural Gas Alliance, but only one representative from a company dedicated to a less polluting wind and solar energy. And the Information and Communications Technology Services and Electric Service Committee includes representatives from Verizon, AT&T, Verizon and AT&T, which domestically are still pushing hard against new net neutrality rules that stop Internet providers from creating more expensive online fast lanes. And the Internet Intellectual Property Rights Committee includes the Recording Industry of America, the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, Apple, Johnson & Johnson, and Yahoo, rather than groups like the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which shares the industry's expertise in intellectual property policy, but has an agenda less aligned with business. Maria Sutton, a global policy analyst with the EFF, points to the Recording Industry Association of America as an organization that has been very much in favor of copyright term extensions and limiting fair use. The pact could make it difficult for countries to shorten copyright terms that extend long past the author's life or for artists to repurpose copyrighted material to make art or music. Apple, Sutton notes, is notorious for creating technology that comes riddled with restrictions on what users and programmers can do with them, a practice that could be bolstered in the TTP. 
There does exist a Trade and Environmental Policy Advisory Committee and a Labor Advisory Committee, but their members are far outnumbered by those from industry. A Washington Post analysis from February 2014 noted of 566 committee members in the 28 committees, 306 come from private industry, an additional 174 hail from trade associations. All told, they represent 85% of the voices on the trade committees. Last year, the Office of U.S. Trade Representative, part of the executive branch that still runs trade negotiations, proposed creating a public interest trade advisory committee, but civil society groups widely refused to participate in a process that would muzzle them from talking about what they saw in the trade agreement. It's hard to have influence if you have 20 people from the industry and one from civil society. They'd have to be pretty serious effort to achieve more balance, says Karen Hankson Kuhn, Director of International Strategies for the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, a Minneapolis-based organization that is concerned about food safety and farming-related provisions of the agreement. The best outcome would be if Congress were to place, put in place a new system. So in future negotiations, when negotiate, negotiating objectives are laid out at a certain point, Congress would weigh in on whether these objectives had been met. If fast track is rejected, I think it opens the possibility of doing things differently. Yeah. So the Senate said, no, they weren't going to do it. Then they said, yes, they were going to do it. So there you go. Well, it depends who's paying the bills at the time. Yes. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> so. Yeah. But yeah, the, the, yes. The <laughs> usual. They're letting industry control. Everything. Everything. What regulations the industry get to follow. Which is, yeah. yeah. No. Never works. It's always interesting to see how much uh, power they seek to siphon away from consumers, though, and money. That's always nice. I still can't believe that Yahoo exists. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> all these tech stories when they come up and it's like, Yahoo? How, how are Yahoo still operating? <laughs> yeah. One of, the, one of the worst run companies in history. Well, you know, yeah, what does it matter? So, um, let's see. Oh, yeah. So we talked about Australia and them forcing people to vote. <laughs> Just gets better for Australia, doesn't it? You shall not have nicotine, and we're not done with you yet. For their 2015 budget, <laughs> they've included some real fun for Australia. The federal government, and this is from Australia, looks set to introduce a tax on bank deposits in the May budget. The idea of a bank deposit tax was raised by Labour in 2013 and was criticized by Tony Abbott at the time. Assistant Treasurer Josh Frydenberg has indicated an announcement on the new tax could be made before the budget. The government is headed for a fight with the banking industry, which has warned it will have to pass the cost back on to consumers. Mr. Frydenberg is a member of the government's Expenditure Review Committee, but has refused to provide any details. Any announcements or decisions around this proposed policy, which we discussed at the last election, will be made in the lead up or on budget night, he said. Speaking at the Victorian Liberal State Council meeting, Mr. Abbott has repeated his budget message, focusing on families and small business. 
is. There will be tough decisions in this year's budget, as there must be, but there will also be good news. I guess the good news is the tax on your deposit as it goes into the bank. Um, the banking industry is raised concerned about a deposit tax, saying it will have to pass the cost back on to customers. Um, Steve Munchenberg from the Australian Bankers Association said it would be a damaging move for the government. It's going to make it harder for banks to raise deposit, which are an important way of funding banks, and therefore for us to fund the economy, he said. And we also oppose it because, particularly at this point in time, with low interest rates, a lot of people who are relying on their savings for incomes are already seeing very low returns, and this will actually mean they get even less money. The federal opposition has accused the government of breaking an election promise by planning to introduce a tax on bank deposits. Sounds great, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I know, not so much. There is actually a lot in the news about money, um, which is there disturbing. There always will be. <laughs> hmm? There always will be. Uh, well, yeah, I still have a very different idea about money, and that's helpful yeah. for me well, anyway. <laughs> look, yeah, look, it's yet another reason not to move to Australia. It gets better. Yeah. So this, is from, this is from the UK. How to end boom and bust. Make <laughs> cash illegal. <laughs> comment forcing everyone to spend only by electronic means from an account held at a government run bank would give the authorities far better tools to deal with recessions and economic booms oh this story is part of money lab um okay so this is all about your money a proposed new law in Denmark, okay, they, they want to take it from Denmark and move it other places, could be the first step towards an, uh, an economic revolution that sees physical currencies and normal bank accounts abolished and gives governments futuristic new tools to fight the cycle of boom and bust. See, money really only exists because we believe in it. The Danish proposal sounds innocuous enough on the surface. It would simply allow shops to refuse payments in cash and insist that customers use contractless debit cards or some other means of electronic payment. Officially, the aim is to ease administrative and financial burdens, such as the cost of hiring a security service to send cash to the bank, and as part of a program of reforms aimed at boosting growth there is evidence that high cash usage in an economy acts as a drag, but the move could be a key moment in the advent of cashless societies. And once money exists only in bank accounts, monitored or even directly controlled by the government, the authorities will be able to encourage us to spend more when the economy slows or spend less when it is overheating. This may all sound far-fetched, but the idea has been developed in some detail by a Norwegian academic, Trond Andersen. In this futuristic world, all payments are made by contractless debit card, mobile phone apps, or other electronic means, while notes and coins are abolished. Your current accounts will no longer be held with a bank, but with the government or the central bank, because that feels safe. Banks still exist and still lend money, but they get their funds from the central bank, not from depositors. Having everyone's account at a single central institution allows the authorities to either encourage or discourage people to spend. To boost spending, the bank imposes a negative interest rate on the money in everyone's account, in effect a tax on saving. 
Faced with seeing their money slowly confiscated, people are more likely to spend it on goods and services. With this change in behavior takes place across the country, the economy gets a significant flip. The recipient of cash responds in the same way and also spends. Money circulates more quickly, or as economists say, the velocity of money increases. What about the opposite situation? When the economy is overheating, the central bank or government will certainly drop any negative interest on credit balances, but could go further and impose a tax on transactions. So whether you use the money in your account to buy something, you pay a small penalty. That makes people less inclined to spend and more inclined to save, so reducing economic activity. Such an approach would be a far more effective way to damp an overheated economy than the blunt tool of a rise in a central bank's official interest rate. If this sounds rather fanciful, negative interest rates already exist in Denmark, where the central bank charges depositors 75 PC per year and in Switzerland. At the moment, it's easy for individuals to avoid seeing their money eroded this way. They can simply hold banknotes stored in either a safe or under the proverbial mattress. But if notes and coins were abolished and the only way to hold money was through a government-controlled bank, there would be no escape. Apart from the control over the economy, there would be many other advantages of a cashless society. Such a system is much cheaper to run than one based on banknotes and coins. Forgery is as is impossible as are robberies. Electronic money is an inclusive and convenient system, giving poor and rural sectors of an economy where cash machines and bank branches may be few and far between, and not all people have accounts, a tool for easy participation in the economy. Finally, the black economy will be hugely diminished and tax evasion made all but impossible. <laughs> a bit, the bit I find mm-hmm. funny. Forgery is impossible, as are robberies. What? So, so when you go, when you get rid of physical money and centralize a bank electronically, uh-huh. suddenly you get rid of all hackers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, apparently, it uh, in their fairy tale world, everything runs exactly the way they want it to, and nothing bad can ever happen. Yeah. And See, this is why particular types of academic shouldn't be allowed to talk to people in government. Particular types of academic... Okay. Yeah, you know, like the people who 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 came up with this. Like, mm. oh, this is a great way to control the economy and you get rid of boom and bust. And then some <laughs> politician goes, ooh, we could try that. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and <laughs> it was only a theory, you know. You don't have to do it. And some asshole always will mm-hmm. want to try it. And don't get me wrong, I don't think money is what we think it is, but no. damn. I, going fully electronic, definitely not going to improve things. No, it's not. It's going to it's make not. things worse. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> money exactly. crime will increase, not decrease. <laughs> when, uh. when somebody robs physical money, it can be tracked. When somebody robs electronic money, it can't be tracked. Yes, but if electronic money is all ones and zeros, like we're pretty sure even our freaking baseless currency is right now, although uh, British pound sterling is the longest-lived fiat currency on the planet, and it still retains more of its value than most of the other currency on planet Earth. Yes, I like money. Shoot (laughs) me. I don't talk about it enough. Um, taking that value away from people, 
That is hideous. Yes. That is hideous. That's okay. They, you know, they want to take away... They want to brainwash you, so you only say what the government wants you to say and think what the government wants you to think. And, and the government will, will control how, how you can use your money. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it sounds, sounds like a great yeah. place to live, doesn't it? It's just um, utopia, obviously, yeah. Uh, last night somebody was asking me how I was doing. I was like, oh, the news has been so good, I started watching iZombie. Well, iZombie's yeah, actually yeah. pretty good. <laughs> but yeah, the, the last week's been uh, pretty <laughs> dire, news-wise. Oh, yeah. No, it hasn't been really great. Um, so, yeah. I, I don't even... Since we did the fun money lab story, <laughs> uh, should I go with one of the Ars Technica ones or because there's lots of them? Oh, I know. Let's talk about that bastard Mitch McConnell. <laughs> I love him, fucker. Uh, McConnell files short term NSA bill. Senator, Senate leader Mitch McConnell has opened the door to a short-term reauthorization of intelligence powers, increasing the stakes in a congressional battle over the Patriot Act. The legislation filed on Thursday evening would renew expiring portions of the Patriot Act for two months to give lawmakers extra time to decide whether to rein in the controversial surveillance practices of the NSA. That's sure to draw the ire of NSA reformers who have rejected even the prospect of a short-term renewal of the legal provisions, which are otherwise set to expire at the end of the month. McConnell stated the fast-track process started the fast-track process to bypass committee to make it available. McConnell spokesperson Don Stewart said in an email, he didn't start proceedings on it though. With just days to go until the deadlines and senior GOP lawmakers have begun discussion about the potential for a short-term bill to eliminate the prospect of the NSA losing any of its powers. I don't know how we have the kind of fulsome debate that is going to be required on the NSA without passing a temporary extension. Senator John Corzine from Texas, McConnell's deputy and number two Senate Republican, told reporters on Thursday in addition to the Patriot Act measure, lawmakers also need to renew highway funding and finalize the trade legislation. There is a range of views on the NSA, Corzine added. I don't know how you get all that done, plus highways before we break. Well, you don't fucking break. The new bill would extend the current June 1st Patriot Act deadline to the end of July. It's unclear whether the legislation could get through the Senate, given the opposition to a clean reauthorization from Democrats, as well as a handful of Republicans, including Senators Rand Paul from Kentucky, Ted Cruz from Texas, Mike Lee from Utah, and others. The House also appears unlikely to take up the short-term bill after lawmakers on Wednesday voted overwhelmingly in favor of a reform <laughs> bill called the USA Freedom Act. Have you ever noticed when they name a bill, it's never what the title implies? The bipartisan group of lawmakers behind the bill on Thursday said they will not agree to any extension of the NSA's bulk collection program. Reformers who have been vehemently opposed to McConnell's plan to extend the NSA program without change have been suspicious that he intends to water down 
the negotiated USA Freedom Act. In addition to the bipartisan House support, the bill has the backing of the White House, intelligence leaders, tech companies, and many privacy groups. McConnell's new short-term reauthorization is a signal of intent to modify the bill, almost certainly by watering it down. Haley Geiger, a supporter of reform and advocacy director for the Center of Democracy and Technology, said in an email, yet there is no fat to cut in this bill in terms of its prohibition on bulk collection. We urge both the House and Senate to reject an extension of any length and decisively end this awful, ineffective, and invasive means of mass surveillance. They should just start, like, promoting it publicly, you know. Spy for you. you Just like ad campaign, you know. Because, yeah, people don't seem to be falling for this. Oh, Uh, it's to protect you, honest. Uh Yeah. <laughs> it's not to hurt you, we're helping. Yeah. You, Wait, you know it's bad when even senators are finding it suspicious. <laughs> yeah, that's true. They usually don't even have their hands in their own pockets. Yeah. So, um, I'm looking for a short one because it's like six minutes until we grab Alex for the CASA update because, you know... <laughs> We're just rocking the good news this evening. <laughs> it's one of those weeks. <laughs> it kind of is. It kind of is. I'm trying to find something pretty small. <laughs> um, <laughs> the nanny state needs the quantified workplace. Companies have more data on staff than ever before in history, and big data analytics is making its way into HR practices fast. Analyzing staff performance is nothing new, but the extent to which we can now collect and analyze such data is going beyond all norms. Sociometric solutions put sensors into employees' name badges that can detect social dynamics in the workplace. The sensors report on how employees move around the workplace, with whom they speak, and even the tone of voice they use when communicating. By analyzing data from Smart Badge Technology, Bank of America noticed that its top performing employees at call centers were those who took breaks together. They instituted group break policies and its performance improved 23%. Another company, HumanScale, builds sensors into its line of office chairs, standing desk, and workstations that offers companies their office IQ system to monitor workplace activity, such as how much time individuals have spent sitting or standing at their desk, as well as how long they've been away from their desk. In Ireland, grocery chain Tesco has its warehouse employees wear armbands that track the goods they take from shelves distributes tasks, and even forecasts completion time for a job. In other sectors, including healthcare and the military, wearables can detect fatigue that could be dangerous to the employee and the job they perform. Fujitsu has just released Ubiquitous Wear, a business package that can collect and analyze data from devices such as an accelerator sensors, accelerometer sensor, barometers, cameras, and microphones to measure and monitor people at work. For example, data such as temperature, humidity, movements, and pulse rate can be used to identify when workers are exposed to too much heat stress. The system can also detect locations and postures body movement or body movements of a human 
to sense a fall, track someone's location, or estimate the physical load on a body. The external monitor parallels what's already being monitored inside the body using health trackers such as Fitbit. Uh, data already shows that employees engaged in wellness programs show significantly smaller increases in the cost of their health care than those who aren't. So far, employees who can't access an individual employee's data records, but those days may not be far off. When a boss might take you aside to discuss your stress level or the long hours you've been putting in at your desk. As the world becomes increasingly digital, companies have endless ways to monitor their staff. Most things you do in a typical workday already generate a lot of data. We send and receive emails, we make phone calls, or we operate equipment. But soon there will be so many new data sources and so many new ways of cutting that data using camera sensors or crowdsourcing data to measure every aspect of someone's performance. Should companies use this data to monitor staff? Is it even ethical to treat us like copiers and routers? One vendor, Cornerstone On Demand, believes it can help companies predict and improve employee performance. Its analytic software is able to take over half a billion employee data points from across the world to identify patterns and make predictions about hiring decisions and employee performance. This kind of analysis can be used to identify the most successful recruitment channels or key employees that might be at risk of leaving. But my fear is that many companies will spend too much time crunching all the things they can so easily collect data on, including how much time we sat in our office chair or how many people we have interacted with, rather than the more meaningful, qualitative measures of what we did when we sat on that chair and the quality of our interactions with others. Yeah, it looks like if I return to the workplace in the future, I'll be carrying a small electromagnet to work. (laughs) I don't blame you. And and be getting pulled into human resources a lot, complaining <laughs> that that's another badge that seems to have stopped working. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I, it's not enough that there's cameras where I work. Um, now, the warehouse staff for the company I work for have had to wear those those name badges for a while now. So, and I think it's yeah, ridiculous. The one they that actually- gets me is the, this article. That doesn't mention Amazon and what it gets up to with employees. <sighs> you work for it's... Amazon in one of their warehouses. You are the most monitored employee on the planet. Yeah, it's pretty bad. I mean, you got that little handset beeping at you all the time, telling you what you're supposed to be doing, and oh, oh you're running behind. Yeah, well, you've got thirty seconds to get to the other end of the warehouse. So I, Run. I didn't put it on my page here, but um. I guess before you go grab Alex, I want to drop a link in the chat, and I've got to run to Facebook to get it. So, um, but yeah, uh, it, it's really bad. The, the workplace is not—it's not good. It's not good for anybody. Um, it's pretty bad trying to figure out how you know how productive humans supposed to be. Those things work really well when you're talking about putting bumpers on cars, but it really doesn't work well for people. Yeah. And so, yeah, humans there's... are random heuristic learning systems. Uh, they do not conform to uh, lovely prearranged behavior patterns. Well, he to use the cycle babble. The this link I'm putting in chat is the new theory 
about what these highly technical workplaces actually produce. And I, I don't think you want me to read it on here because I think we would definitely get uh, a censor. The basics is it stifles creativity. Sure. <laughs> that, that's, that's what we'll say. That's the short say. version. <laughs> but, that's um, the yeah. short version. <laughs> that, that article is pretty good. If you work in retail um, or if you work in an office or if you work somewhere where someone's monitoring you, you definitely want to read that article. It's very good. Yeah. It talks about the one thing we produce in this country. Yeah, productivity goes up, but uh, psychological problems do as well. Mm -hmm. I would agree with that. Yeah. So, um, uh, Alex, let me see if Alex is even around. Well, he's online. Okay. I shall see if I can add him. Okay. And here he is. Hello. Hello. Good evening and welcome to the CASA update for the week of 5-18-2015. How are you this week, Alex? Tired as usual. <laughs> uh, well, there's always plenty to do. There's always more work to be done, it seems like. Um, so... Um, where would you like to start this week? Well, I'll, I'll give you the choice. Um, do you want to? Uh, you want the good news up front or at the end? Is, How, is it good to start with the bad news and then? You might as well start the with the bad bad news because we were just talking about. Um, yeah, you might as well start with the bad news. The audience is used to that. Okay. <laughs> Um, so, uh, I'll mention this, well, we, I, I updated our call to action on this, uh, last night. Um, Sonoma, California is having a, uh, a public hearing in a couple hours. Um, and, uh, this is, I saw somebody had posted about this in our Facebook group, uh, a little bit ago. Um, couple hours ago right and um so this is an ordinance that's been working its way this was introduced back in march mm -hmm. um actually we hadn't even seen the language yet and we released a call to action because a couple other people close to this issue had uh seen some things and this was uh working uh, had the potential to be very, very bad. It is still quite crappy. Um, so this is, <laughs> uh, this ordinance will require uh, anyone selling vapor products to get a tobacco retailer's license or tobacco dealer's license. Um, of course, they've, they've, they've crafted this requirement and then they've, only allowed 15 locations in the city of Sonoma to actually get a tobacco dealer's license. Um, and I Google, I, I looked at the Google Maps last night, and these locations are already occupied by people who sell cigarettes and other tobacco products. So these are things like 
convenience stores, discount tobacco shops. I believe there was a, a, a wine store in another, I don't know if wine and spirits places are allowed to sell cigarettes in California, but whatever. Um, uh, so they can have a tobacco retailer's license. So uh, like I said, these 15 addresses are already occupied by people that sell cigarettes. Um, so <laughs> not a vapor retailer, not a vape shop. Um, and uh, on top of this, the bill would prohibit the sales of flavored e-liquid other than tobacco and menthol. So if you're one of these locations and you would like to sell the least appealing, least effective vapor products, then you can, I guess. <laughs> um, if you happen to go out of business for some reason and some foolhardy entrepreneur in Sonoma wants to open up a vape shop and only sell to flavors, <laughs> you can do that too. Um, so this is a pretty horrible ordinance and uh, I, somebody had posted in the thread in Facebook that I think this had spawned um, some rather interesting comments from the city council a couple months ago. So um, I, I, I want to mention this for two reasons. Number one, because we put out a call to action for it. And number two, because there's likely to be an entertaining recording of the proceedings um, <laughs> that, that we should eventually link to. Um, so oh if you're in Sonoma and you're listening to this, it sounds like the California folks are sort of already on this. But um, right. if not, get connected with um, the, uh, I, I believe the California Safata people are, are organizing stuff, the Northern, Northern, Northern California chapter. Um, so you've got a couple hours yet. Uh, this is six o'clock uh, Pacific. Um, so uh, yeah, uh, go 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 to a, what may be, very well be an entertaining city council meeting. Um, so that's Sonoma, um, and then of course down down the street. I don't know where is the Santa Barbara, California, Santa Barbara County. Okay. Not, not the town of Santa Barbara or city of Santa Barbara, but mm -hmm. Santa Bar the entire county um, has uh, introduced, introduced an ordinance that would prohibit vaping where smoking is already banned. Um, and of course, they're using the, the term electronic smoking device. Mm -hmm. um, and this meeting is tomorrow, Tuesday, May 19th, at the convenient time of nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Um, so all of you people who are independently wealthy and don't have to work for a living, uh, I guess you're welcome to attend this hearing. Um, for the rest of us, uh, we have provided email and phone contact information, plus a list of compelling talking points. Um, so Santa Barbara County residents, which I believe there was like 27 of them that I sent an email out to today, um, this morning. Um, there you go. Uh, please take action and oppose this nonsense. Um, and another, on that note, I, I brought up electronic smoking device. I think there was a study circulating around Facebook uh, this weekend. And somebody, uh, one of the authors of the study referred to vapor products, electronic cigarettes as alternative nicotine delivery systems. And I figured that that was a, it's a, and 
alternative nicotine delivery systems. Huh, I, I think it and <laughs> instead I, of ends. And I, I just like I can't believe it, that none of us actually thought to do that. I, I, it's it's a pretty good um, answer back to ends. Um, and for anybody who's who's not familiar with why this is an issue, um, Carl has written a blog post about why ends is such a horrible and derogatory term and clearly politically motivated. Um, and uh, throw electronic smoking device into that mix as well. Um, I believe New Jersey was the first state to use it. I'm not sure. Uh, it, oh, probably, probably. it probably originated at the municipal level. Um, and I don't know if we actually have New Jersey GASP to, think, to thank for that. Um, we probably do. Um, so I'm not clear on the precise origins of it, but uh, the New Jersey state code was the first place I saw it. So... Um, you know, if it's news to me, it must be news to everyone. Um, anyway, uh, so we've got we've got Sonoma, we've got Santa Barbara. Um, there were a couple of other local alerts uh, that let's see, uh, Denver, Colorado, is right. meeting tonight. Oh, another one tonight. Sorry. <laughs> Probably should have started with that because it's 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 actually it's happening in 20 minutes, um, so that's 5:30 Mountain Time. Um, that is uh, this is, would be a ban on free samples, um, and the way that this is written, um, it, I it, it wouldn't affect zero nicotine samples right. like when you go to test stuff out in. A vape shop. Uh, of course, I'm. I'm not sure. I can't remember if Denver prohibited vaping indoors for all places. Um, so that's sort of a moot point. Um, but even if this wouldn't affect vapor retailers and how they make sales, this would affect um, trade shows. Uh, should anyone decide to have a big vaping event, Denver um, uh, would be, yeah would make it difficult to give away free samples. Didn't Denver just recently legalize uh, consumption of marijuana products? Um, I believe the entire state did, yes. Yeah. I guess it's okay if you want to smoke it or bake it into a brownie, but not if you want to vape it. Um, yeah, I just... You know, it, when, when the aliens come down from outer space <laughs> and introduce these technologies... <laughs> All of our children are going to end up smoking crack and slamming heroin. So we we have to nip this stuff in the bud. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Council Bill CB15-0268. Uh, this is final consideration. Um, so uh, uh, this came out. I, I put this out yesterday. Hopefully people were able to send a boatload of emails um, and get on the phone today and pressure city council to abandon this effort. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, so I guess we'll see how that goes. <sighs> um, so we got Denver and uh, Naperville, Illinois mm -hmm. is uh, looking at a tobacco dealer's license 
uh, effort again. Um, mm -hmm. I had actually reached out to uh, one of the folks that's on our board of advisors, uh, Vicki, um, and uh, asked, because I know that some people in Illinois had sort of proactively gotten tobacco licenses. Um, so I wasn't quite sure on the issue, but uh, yes, it is sort of a, a CASA position that if licensing or registration must take place, that there should be a separate category for vapor retailers. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> because once, you know, this is one of those things that we, we learned this lesson from Iowa, when municipalities start requiring people to register as tobacco retailers, it can affect, it sort of automatically includes you in potentially parts of the state code um, that treat, that are a lot more strict on tobacco retailers. And so it can affect things like online sales, advertising, um, and potentially other restrictions. So right. essentially any bill that would, would subject uh, vapor retailers to tobacco licensing is, is inappropriate. Um, and if it's just a matter of registering shops for the purpose of compliance, so that they can come in and do, you know, if they want to run a sting operation and see if you're selling to the kids, um, you know, simply just registering with the local health department is enough. You're on a list somewhere and they can check that and check you off every three to six months and say, okay, you're compliant. That's, that's how that should be done. Um, yeah. And of all places, New York State seems to have figured that out. So, um, <laughs> hey, uh, wow. something. Something decent came out of New York this year. Um, scary. And uh, let's see, Salem, Oregon. Uh, this is meeting. Oh wow! I need to capitalize the month of uh, May. Um, <laughs> uh, Salem, Oregon is. Uh, this would prohibit vaping on city-owned property which uh, ordinarily, you know, if City Hall doesn't want you to vape in council chambers, uh, we're cool with that. Uh, it's kind of like your local bar saying they don't want to have vaping in there. Uh, you know, property owners are certainly entitled to their rights, and I'm not going to get into this debate about who owns City Hall, but um, right. it's certainly something that we're not necessarily opposed to. Um, but they're going to prohibit use on things like parks and walking trails, uh, outdoor areas, which is just stupid. I um, love outdoor vaping bans. That's just beyond stupid. Uh, I mean, I can, I can. The, probably the only thing that I could say is a, a justifiable reason for prohibiting smoking outdoors is potentially litter. But then again, maybe you should also create some sort of thousand-foot barrier between, you know the local park and uh, a fast food restaurant as well, because, well, you know, I mean, see when, what do you know? I, I guess the one thing I know about a lot of these outdoor bands is they're saying no, no level of tobacco smoke is safe. Okay. Uh, let's push that aside. Cause you're outside in the open, fresh air, right. And it's dissipating. So you're getting, minuscule, minuscule amounts if you're walking by. What happened when they started to institute these outdoor bans is the ALA and the American Heart Association, the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, all those wonderful people, got together and they started harassing all these city councils to remove all the ashtrays because they said, well, if it's illegal, you shouldn't enable 
an illegal use and then you notice litter becomes an issue. You know what I mean? It wasn't an issue when the people actually had a place to dispose of their cigarette butts, but now it is. It's just they're making their own future work. You know what I mean? It's almost like they pre-planned it. Not that I can prove that, but you know, <laughs> that's really what I think. It's <laughs> an interesting, interesting theory. I know that probably 99% of smokers don't know how to field strip a butt, so... Um, that's kind of, <laughs> well, that's not even really hard, but still, <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. Um, but, uh, yeah, I used to have pockets full of cigarette butts. Um, that's, uh, that's just how I roll. Um, anyway, yeah, in Central Park, it's still got plenty of cigarette butts laying around in it, even though it's illegal to smoke in parks in New York City. Sure it is. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see somebody enforce it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that goes over real well. Um, so anyway, that we've got plenty of time uh, for people to speak out against this in Salem, Oregon. That's Tuesday, May 26th. Uh, so that you've got a, a full week to get emails um, to the city council and, and ask them to be a bit more thoughtful about how they treat vapor products. Um, Salem, Oregon. Uh, yes. Okay. So I think that's all the weird and potentially bad news for this week. Okay. But that was quick. It was actually. <laughs> so. Okay. So, uh, some good news, uh, that we need to update on our blog. Um, uh, just got kind of confirmation about this today, I believe. Um, I am comfortable to report okay. that uh, Vermont Senate Bill 139 that was in conference committee last week mm -hmm. has had the tax language removed from it. Nice. So no, as far as I could tell, no vapor tax in Vermont this year. Mm -hmm. um, so that will be an update. Uh, that I will be happy to provide hopefully once I get just a little bit more confirmation on that. Um, uh, so that's good. Thank you everyone in Vermont for taking action. Um, I believe that there were some people that worked very closely with lawmakers up there. Uh, again, thank you very much. Um, and then of course the kind of blockbuster for this week is HR 2058. Uh, which has been introduced into the U.S. Congress um, and uh, deserves a little bit of discussion. Um, but for those who don't know, uh, if this is your first exposure to this, um, this is the FDA Deeming Authority Clarification Act of 2015, or H.R. 2058 for short. Um, Representative Tom Cole of Oklahoma introduced this bill, and it's very brief. Uh, I believe there's maybe half a dozen lines and simply put, it would change the grandfather date for deemed tobacco products to something more appropriate, like when the FDA regulations are finalized, which people suspect will be this year. It could be next year. Who knows? Um, but the, the, uh, the rolling, I, the rolling theory is that it will be this summer. Um, and so what this does is opens up the pool of predicate products that manufacturers can reference right. when they 
ultimately register their products with the FDA. Mm -hmm. um, we are urging people to express strong support for this bill. Um, if anything is going to help us get through the FDA deeming regulations, uh, this is one of those things. Obviously, we would like to see the FDA deeming regulations changed to give <laughs> some special consideration to vapor products and not not subject them to what is a uh, prohibitive uh, application process. And, and, uh, you know, super costly. <laughs> exactly. Um, it, it's sort of, you know, banned by paperwork and money. Um, <clears throat> so by all means, we want people to support this bill, but I think people should, there is a bit of a reality check here in that there are still hoops that manufacturers are going to have to jump through in order to bring their products to market and to keep their products on the market. Um, so this is not a panacea. This does not solve all of our problems. And in fact, uh, we, we do have a bit of a, there is an asterisk um, on our blog post. Uh, and, and I think it should be made clear that we will still see uh, a, a chunk a, a, of manufacturers exit the market if you know even if this bill passes and the fda regulations are finalized the way we kind of think there will be um there will still be a, a noticeable percentage of, of manufacturers that, that that just won't make it um mostly because you know i think it, it takes there's a certain level of organization and obviously a financial consideration um, that, that uh, will factor into people being able to navigate the, um, the just the simple registration process, which I'm, I'm somewhat unfamiliar with, but um, uh, this is sort of how I understand it at, at this time. Okay. So um, it, it's more <laughs> like a stopgap. It, it, it enables us to fight another day. I think it's yeah, not it, perfect. It, at the very least, it won't set us back to 2007. Yeah. I don't want to go back to a 901 and a freaking stick battery. Stick batteries were terrible. 901, not so bad. Uh, but stick batteries, the most terrible thing on planet earth. If you wanted to go out for more than 20 minutes, you need to have like 12 of them. So um, was the P was the PCC, the personal charging case, was oh that even on the God. market in, in 2007? No, no. Um, so I started, so I started six years ago and I think they were just starting to come out with those and they were the yeah. most God awful thing ever made. Um, and they made them to look like cigarette packs, Yeah, which was kind of funny because, you know, I don't know. After about uh, three, four weeks of vaping, I was like, I need a mod. <laughs> I can't deal with this. I don't care if it looks like a shoe. Uh, it's got to, you know, vape better than this. So uh, I was an early adopter of the technology. So it, it really would be a shame to set people back to the Stone Ages as far as vaping goes. You know, um, 
recent advances have made it so much easier to vape and so much more satisfying. And taking that away from people uh, is it, something I think the FDA should be criminally negligent for, but they won't be, you know, sadly. Yeah. So something like this could help stop that. Yeah. Yeah, this definitely gives us a lot more options, uh, kind of no matter what happens. Um, so, uh, so yes, despite all of my doom and gloom, uh, please, please take action now and uh, support this bill. Yeah. Yeah. I was surprised my representative from Florida signed on to that bill. It's like, all right, Tom Rooney. Shocked, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> If anything could make you a single issue voter, it's something like this. Just saying, not everybody, just me, I guess. <laughs> so, um, I did, um, not that, um, I, I had an update kind of about, uh, Port St. Lucie, Florida, but when we were on the podcast last week telling people you should be driving, Driving right. to or sitting in council chambers, yeah, it uh, it, it lost. Um, it, Monday, they unanimously approved a new law banning the use of e-cigarettes in places such as restaurants, stores, and theaters. And that entire law was started because the mayor of Port St. Lucie, Florida, had a bad experience with a vapor blowing clouds around him. Interesting. So, just throwing that out there. So, yeah, if I don't like it, you can't do it. I guess also a word of caution. Uh, mm -hmm. Vapors everywhere should should be aware that I guess you never know when a city council person is going to be sitting next to you. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> just, just think about what you're doing. That's all. Yeah. Uh, so no big deal. But I, I think uh, he's the kind of guy that would have... Um, Banned anything he didn't like anyway. He's kind of, um, kind of a a Michael uh, Bloomberg esque character, from what I understand. So, uh, the people of Port St. Lucie have an interesting time having elected him. <laughs> Glad he's not my mayor. So, yeah, I guess is that it for tonight? Um, it, it sort of is. I know that. Uh... There is an indoor vaping ban kind of gaining steam in New York State. Okay. Um, I, I, everybody in New York, I think, should be on high alert uh, yeah. where the state seems to be fumbling in, in passing an indoor vaping law. Um, county legislatures are uh, able to kind of get around that. So there have been uh, three, maybe four counties in New York state that have passed, uh, indoor vaping restrictions. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so I, I would urge people that it's, 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 it's not impossible, but it's very difficult to get updates on this. And each County legislature seems to be uh, a bit different. Um, their, their websites are certainly very different from each other. <laughs> and leave much to be desired in ease of access. So oh, yeah. uh, it's a bit, you know, it's, it's hard enough learning 50 state legislatures, let alone, I don't know how many different counties there are in, in New York state, but um, mm -hmm. so uh, New York vapors should be 
uh, tuned in to what your municipal and county legislatures are doing. Um, yeah. Um, my, my tip for that is scan your local newspaper for stories about smoking bans or possible smoking bans and then read the whole thing. Because that's how a lot of these are getting snuck in by changing the smoke-free workplaces laws or, you know, smoke-free places laws that many of these municipalities and towns have in place. So that's, I guess, one way to go if you don't like maneuvering your way through the websites. Although if you live there, you should have some sort of glancing familiarity with your health department and your your state and local government websites. I do. Not saying everybody's like me, but it's not hard to just click and look around. And um, it's always good to have that little bit of familiarity with it in case you need it later on. So. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So. What's up so, yeah, next that's, week? Uh, <clears throat> I, I, I don't know. Um, okay. I, the good news is that uh, it's it's May, and yes. there are legislatures that are coming to the end of their session. Um, Hawaii is one of those, uh, although Hawaii passed a uh, two bills, one that prohibits indoor use and the other that raises the age of purchase to 21. Um, uh, no tax bill passed in Hawaii this okay. year. So that's good news. Um, and special thanks to Hawaiian Vapors United for all of their work. Um, I know that uh, Oregon seems intent on passing something with the language inhale and delivery system in it. Um, I don't I know it, what's wrong with Oregon. Um, I think so it's Oregon and New York. It's that guy that every year tries to pass making all nicotine products available by prescription only. He's the one who's really yeah. pushing this. He, there's, he there's a pack of them. There's an infestation in Oregon. <laughs> <laughs> Just anti-nicotine people. Um, it's too bad. So um, I, I, I don't know if anything is going to happen with Oregon this week. Uh, things might be a little bit too far gone at this point. Um, but uh, we'll see. So I, it, as far as I'm concerned, I sort of have Oregon and New York on my radar for Okay. Uh, things to potentially flare up. Um, and uh, I guess that's what I'm going to be working on tonight. <laughs> um, um, I'll give you a hand later. I'll come over and, and whatever. Whatever you need, I'll go dig for it because Google loves me. What can I tell you? Um, nice. Always appreciate the help. Oh, well, you know, I uh, do it because I love the work. Um <laughs> So, are you still there? Hello? Yeah, I got you. Okay. I'm sorry. I so, said thank Go ahead. Uh no, I just I was going to say we should wrap this up. We're at a cool 30 minutes. So Okay. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for coming on tonight and uh everything you do is appreciated. Um Everybody, please join Kasa if you haven't already. You can see our see us on our Facebook page or our official Facebook page. You can see us on Twitter as Kasa Media. We're also on Instagram as Kasa Media and um, 
also please take the time to submit your testimonies, uh, testimonials to testimonials at kasad.org. Um, thank you for everything you do. Uh, have a great night and we'll see you next week. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you. told you tonight was going to be nothing but a good time. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, All right. So I got some stuff to add to my local alert. Um, Okay. So let's see. Do we want to talk about long range iris scanning? (laughs) Or (laughs) I know it's the choices are just endless this evening, aren't they? Um, or worker fire, fired for disabling GPS app that tracked her 24 hours a day. Which one sounds better to you? Uh, I have no preference. Okay. <laughs> worker fired for disabling GPS app that tracked her 24 hours a day. This intrusion would be highly offensive to a reasonable person, her lawsuit says. A Central California woman claimed she was fired after uninstalling an app her employer required her to run constantly on her company-issued iPhone, an app that tracked her every move 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Plaintiff Myrna Arias, a former Bakersfield sales executive for money transfer service Intermex, claims in a state court lawsuit that her boss, John Stewitz, fired her shortly after she uninstalled the job management Exora app that she and her colleagues were required to use according to her suit in Kern County Superior Court. After researching the app and speaking with a trainer from Exora, plaintiff and her co-workers asked whether Intermex would be monitoring their movements while off-duty. Stubitz admitted that employees would be monitored while off-duty and bragged that he knew how fast she was driving at specific moments ever since she installed the app on her phone. Plaintiff expressed that she had no problem with the app's GPS function during work hours, but she objected to the monitoring of her location during non-work hours and complained to Stubus that this was an invasion of her privacy. She likened the app to a prisoner's ankle bracelet and informed Stubus that his actions were legal. Stubus replied that she should tolerate the illegal intrusion. Intermex did not immediately respond for comment. The suit, which claims invasion of privacy, retaliation, unfair business practices, and other allegations, seeks damages in excess of $500,000 and asserts that she was monitored on the weekends when she was not working. Arias' boss scolded her for uninstalling the app shortly after being required to use it, according to the suit. Her attorney said the woman made $7,250 per month, and she met all quotas during a brief stint with Intermex last year. The intrusion would be highly offensive to a reasonable person, the filing says. Arias' attorney, Gail Glick, said in a Monday email to Ars Technica that the app followed her client's bosses to see every move the employees made throughout the day. The app had a clock-in, clock-out feature, which did not stop GPS monitoring. That function remained on. This is the problem about which Ms. Ayers complained, Management never made mention of mileage. They would tell her co-workers and her of their driving speed, roads taken, and time spent at customer locations. Her manager made it clear that he was using the program continuously to monitor her during company as well as personal time. I have a problem with that. Yeah. I have a huge problem with that. 
So, yeah, uh, yeah, I guess you could leave the phone at home, but why should you be required to have four or five different phones? I don't well, know. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess work phone, personal phone still seems a well, bit... Well, that's it. I mean, it's a case of if the company requires her to have that app mm-hmm. on her phone... Uh-huh. That means it shouldn't be her phone. The company should be providing her with a phone mm-hmm. that the app's installed on. Mm-hmm. Then she could leave it when she wasn't <laughs> at work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> shouldn't be shouldn't be having to install it on her own phone. Well, I mean, I guess um, the that's, problem is that's that basically them trying to control something that belongs to you. Well, it's well, that they're to trying the to control you in your off-site hours. I mean, that's yeah. kind of as bad as the workplaces that have the no smoking things, and then they tell you you can't smoke in your off hours. Well, why is it any of your business what I do in my off time? It's not. And yet, you know as well as I do, people are being monitored for that as well. Yeah. So just because you work for someone doesn't mean they have the right to control you. They have the right to control you during your contracted work time. Yes. Do you know what I mean? They have the right to oh, yeah, she needs to inhibit your behavior and, and all that stuff. So hmm? she should. It was actually a work phone. She, in which case, yeah, I hmm. wasn't tracking her at the weekends unless she was using it as her only phone. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess the way to stop that is leave it at your desk on Friday night to charge. Well, yes. You know. And, and then on a plus side, it might burn down the office over the weekend. <laughs> well, right, but she was required to have it on 24-7. I don't think I'd want to be driving around with something on after work hours. It seems to me that's something you should be able to turn on and off at, at will because I think it's kind of creepy for your boss to know where you live. You know what I mean? Via GPS function. I would feel really weirded out if my boss knew that about me. My boss has no fucking reason to know that about me. See, see, if if, if I had that sort of situation, um, it would be very tempting for me to, uh, at the weekends when I wasn't working, give my phone to somebody else. <laughs> Let them wander about with it for the weekend. Give it back to me Here. on a Sunday night. <laughs> do what you want. Yeah, that's true. I, I guess uh, you could do what that prisoner did down here in Florida. The one who, um, they let him finish out his jail sentence at home and he had to wear an ankle bracelet. Well, he cut it off and put it on his cat. Yeah, that's what happens when you use the crap ankle bracelets. <laughs> the, the, decent ones, guess... the decent ones know when they've been cut. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I mean, um, employee monitoring is easier now. It's actually been going on for a very, very long time. Yeah, but they uh, Many they companies really... have tracked vehicles for a long time. Yeah, I, I don't know. I just have a problem with it. There should be a clear separation between work and home. Yeah. And your company should respect that. You know, uh, well, the time you contract out to them, them is, to, is their yeah. time, but then but, your time has nothing to fucking do with them. Yeah, when, when you're off-duty... Yeah, it should be illegal for them to monitor what you're doing. Yeah. Because it's none of their business. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, <laughs> there's, 
I, I know how the legal system works, kind of. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there are <laughs> huge areas in there about you know, bringing the company into disrepute and all that kind of nonsense that mm-hmm. they use to get round the yeah. sort of privacy thing. But yeah. Yeah. No, we, they actually dropped that from, because um, when I first got hired, where I got hired, I mean, that was one of the things. You were not allowed to act in a way that would bring, um, what is the word, scrutiny, outside scrutiny on my company. And I'm like, I'm a fucking, when they hired me, I was like, I'm a fucking cashier at a goddamn grocery store. What's your problem? <laughs> but um they fired people for just getting up to shenanigans and and they had to pull that out they were taken to court and they had to pull that out yes. of of the workers contract um that you signed when you were hired and uh yeah, man, a lot now of the language is completely cla- different yeah the clause will still be there they'll just have worded it more carefully Mm, probably, but they're not firing people for stupid shit like they used to. No. You know, people would, there would be managers would go out and go out on a Friday night, bunch of their hideous manager friends and get drunk and trash, you know, IHOP or something, and then they'd all get fired for it. And, I mean, trashing IHOP is pretty hard to do. They'd, like, unscrew the light bulbs from the chandeliers and throw them in their water glasses and yeah, they'd get fired for stupid shit like that. That was really none of the company's business. It's just what they did in their off time. So, yeah, I have uh, a negative view of your workplace having that much control over you. Okay, I guess we'll talk about iris scanning and then... God, I think there's loads more fun stuff to cover. <laughs> <laughs> Long-range iris scanning is here. An engineering professor at Carnegie Mellon says he's invented technology that can identify someone from across the room with the precision of a fingerprint. An officer pulls someone over on the side of the highway. The cop sits in the car a moment, runs the plates, they're fine, and gets out of the car. As he or she approaches the driver's side window, the driver pulls out a gun, shoots the officer, and flees. This is something close to what happened in Long Island earlier this year when a Suffolk County police officer was shot during a traffic stop. Unlike the recent traffic stop shooting in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, the suspect in the New York case police told CBS was a known gang member. Mario Savides, a Carnegie Mellon engineering professor, says he invented the fix, a long-range iris scanner that can identify someone as they glance at their rearview mirror In other words, it's technology that could potentially identify a dangerous suspect before a cop even gets out of the car. It is the first effective long-range iris scanner, he says. Um, As with fingerprints, an individual's iris is so distinctive as to be unique. Fingerprints require you to touch something. Irises can be captured at a distance. So they're making the whole user experience much less intrusive and much more comfortable, Savetas told their reporter. Unlike other scanners, which required someone to step up to a machine, his scanner can capture someone's iris and face as they walk by. There is no X marks the spot. There is no place you have to stand. Anywhere between 6 and 12 meters, it will find you. It will zoom in and capture both irises and full face, he said. Carnegie Mellon described a whole host of other functions for the scanner beyond just police use. It could replace government IDs at the airport and elsewhere. Like other bio- types of biometrics, it could replace a laptop's login system. 
as a sector, biometrics are undoubtedly important. Many security experts believe that passwords and security regime that accompanies them are fundamentally broken. Servatus, for his part, sees biometrics as one more method of human-computer interaction, and near everyone would like to reduce traffic stop murders. Yet there is something threatening about a long-range iris scanning. Identification to a degree comparable to fingerprints at a distance is not something our social habits and political institutions are wired for. I don't mean... Okay, it's not all that hard to imagine sinister applications for this technology. If Cervetta's invention works as well as he says it does, governments could scan the face of everyone walking on a city block. It could algorithmically identify a disgusted political activist. Huh. Yeah, imagine that. Walking down a city street, driving a car, or passing through airport security... When I asked Servatus about the security and privacy implications of his long-range scanner, he said there were other threats he considered much more serious. I always hear the same thing. Oh, well, now I can be tracked with biometrics, he told me. There's no need to do that. It's all, it's too expensive. Uh, people are being tracked. Their every move, their purchasing, their habits, where they are every day, through credit card transactions, through Advantage cards. If someone really wanted to know what you were doing every moment of the day, they don't need facial recognition or iris recognition to do that. They're already out there, he said. It's a little strange to cite the threat of corporate surveillance when talking about iris scanning because the concept's most famous appearance is in science fiction is corporate surveillance. In the film Minority Report, advertisers use iris scanners to serve personalized billboards to people as they walk by, which call out to them by name. John Anderson, you could use a Guinness right about now. I propose a different hypothetical to Cervantes. What if a political activist trying to flee a repressive regime was identified by his or her irises and apprehended? You use that example, and I actually want to use that example because I had that discussion just now with a non-profit, Cervantes said. One of the biggest world problems is human sex trafficking, kids being abducted and trafficked across borders. And if there is such a system at the borders that could identify them, you don't know how much their own governments want that because they cannot control how many poor children are being abducted and sold to other countries, he said. That is more off, more often than once a decade. There is some prisoner who may be high profile. This happens every day, every second in some country. I would go to sleep at night very peacefully knowing that I saved a five-year-old child that had been transported across the country. Zephram Global, a Virginia-based nonprofit, which works to stop trafficking, confirmed that they are working with Cervantes. Iris scanning is already in use around the world. In the United States, police have scanned the irises of prisoners in custody for at least four years. We have everybody in orange jumpsuits, so everyone looks the same. We, quite literally, the last thing we do before you leave our facility is we compare your iris to our database, a spokesman for the Plymouth County Jail in Massachusetts told Reuters in 2011. Around the same time, the Indian government began scanning the irises of every citizen in order to assign them a unique identification number, which they must have to receive certain government benefits. The United Arab Emirates has scanned the iris of everyone entering or leaving the country for more than a decade. These existing technologies, though, once only worked at close range. In fact, iris scanning has been defended in the U.S. so far because it seemed impossible to use it discreetly. You'd know if your irises were getting scanned. 
it required a level of cooperation that makes it very overt. A person knows that you're taking a picture for this purpose, the CEO of an iris scanning technology said in the same 2011 Rogers story. If it succeeds, long-distance scanning will change all that, Cervati says. His team has secured the patent for his invention and will continue to work to make it easier and cheaper. He continues, too, to look for positive implications for it. Hollywood has done such an amazing job of stigmatizing iris scanning negatively, he told me. I develop a technology, and the goal is how can this help society? How can I save a life? <laughs> yes. Mm. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, this is this is what happens. Yes. Uh huh. The 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 scientist in question uh, can only see one side of the argument, yep. basically. But a lot of scientists are like that, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, uh, I have the world's best glasses. I refuse to get glare coating on them, and um, they've even told me at work, like when I walk in because I'm actually pretty close friends with one of the guys who comes and goes through the security tapes um, every so often. He's like, we just can't pick up your face. The glare off your glasses is ridiculous. We can't pick up your face. We can't pick up your eyes. Yeah, I'm like, I've, I've, I've got, <laughs> there's um, a reason I didn't get glare-resistant coating on my glasses. Ah, well, no. You see, uh, when you go to the extremes of glare resistance, because <laughs> mm-hmm. I have uh, quite bad light sensitivity, um, and I have, well, in Europe, what they call Category 4 sunglasses. Mm-hmm. Uh, category 4 basically means they cut out 95% of light going through the glass. Really produces interesting results when people try to uh, do things with your eyes with that. Because mm-hmm. um, <laughs> really, they're that dark. Right. There's no way the iris scanner would be able to see, identify your eye, let alone scan it. Because uh, they're well, wraparounds, obviously, as well. Right. So it can't come in at a side angle and see in. Mm-hmm. But they're mirrored on the outside. That's one of the ways they block some of the light. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, I just, I don't understand why we need to know everything about everybody. There is some point you have the right to be left alone right uh i believe it's when you're dead it's all it's only when you're dead yeah. okay um then you won't know what's going on they'll still be won't. interfering with you <laughs> it won't yeah. matter they'll still be snooping into your life but you yeah. won't know about it yeah um i promised i would talk about stingrays <laughs> Stand by for action. We are about to launch Stingray. Anything can happen in the next half hour. 
that sounds so much catchier than IRS eye catcher, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, this is from Ars Technica. Uh, the ACL. <clears throat> Sorry, the ACLU says federated oversight of when and why stingrays are used is long overdue. The FBI has released a statement regarding the use of stingrays, which apparently claims the opposite of what its non-disclosure agreement with local law enforcement actually says. According to the Washington Post, which quoted from but did not publish the statement on Thursday, the FBI doesn't actually prevent local law enforcement from disclosing stingray use. Ars Technica received a copy of the statement from the FBI Friday morning, and uh, there's a link to document cloud that I'll stick up in the chat, and that's in that is the statement in full for anybody who wants to see it. Uh, among other things, it says the NDA should not be construed to prevent a law enforcement officer from disclosing to the court or a prosecutor the fact that this technology was used in a particular case. Defendants have a legal right to challenge the use of electronic surveillance devices and not disclosing their use could inappropriately and adversely affect a defendant's right to challenge the use of the equipment. Not only can stingrays or cell site simulators be used to determine location by spoofing a cell tower, but they can also be used to intercept calls and text messages. Once deployed, the devices intercept data from a target phone as well as information from other phones within the vicinity. For years, federal and local law enforcement have tried to keep their existence a secret while simultaneously upgrading their capabilities. Over the last years, the devices have come under increasing scrutiny. New information about the secretive devices has come to light. The statement comes just days after Washington State's governor signed into law a new statute that not only requires the cops to get a warrant before using a stingray, but that they fully describe its capabilities to judges in that warrant application and agree to provisions to minimize and destroy data captured from non-target phones. Within the last year, there have been examples of prosecutors who have dropped cases even after receiving guilty pleas rather than offering disclosures on stingray use. The statement says that this provision has never been invoked by the FBI. In April 2015, the New York ACLU won a lawsuit filed against Erie County Sheriff's Office and northwestern New York, where that agency was compelled to produce its NDA with the FBI for the first time. That one had been released in fully unredacted form. Uh, similar agreements are believed to exist between the FBI and many other law enforcement agencies worldwide. The newly released, newly revealed sections state, 7. The Erie County Sheriff's Office shall not in any civil or criminal proceeding Use or provide any information concerning the Harris Corporation wireless collection, equipment, technology, its associated software, operating manuals, or any related documentation, including its technical engineering descriptions and capabilities beyond the evidentiary results obtained through the use of the equipment technology, uh, including but not limited to pretrial matters and search warrants, related affidavits and discovery in response to court ordered disclosure and other affidavits in grand jury hearings in state's case in chief rebuttal on appeal or in testimony in any phase of civil or criminal trial without the prior written approval of the FBI. Section 8. 
In addition, the Erie County Sheriff's Office will, at the request of the FBI, seek dismissal of the case in lieu of using or providing or allowing others to use or provide any information concerning the Harris Corporation wireless collection equipment technology, its associated software, operating manuals, and any related documentation beyond the evidentiary results obtained through use of equipment slash technology. If using or providing such information would potentially or actually compromise the equipment technology, this point suppresses, this point supposes that the agency has some control or influence over prosecutorial process. Where such is not the case or is limited so as to be inconsequential, it is the FBI's expectation that the law enforcement agency identify the applicable prosecuting attorney or agencies for inclusion in this agreement. But it doesn't say what it says. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, yeah, the FBI's lying, going, oh, we're not telling people they can't disclose stingray use. While yeah, at the same well, time getting them to sign documents saying they won't <laughs> discuss. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then go find the prosecuting attorney and get them to sign it. What? Yeah. When have you ever seen a... Uh, okay. That's just screwed up. Uh, we talked about the NSA bill. I also want to talk about SOPA. Um, how about we talk about the NSA? And I, I think that's that's so happy. I think I'm going to call it a day after that one. <laughs> Not so fast. Court ruling on NSA is no victory. Many cheered headlines declaring that a federal appellate court struck down an NSA bulk surveillance program Thursday. This was last week thinking it means the end of the massive spy program. It doesn't. In fact, it provides yet more evidence that we cannot ever count on the federal government to limit itself. From a practical standpoint, the ruling wasn't nearly the victory many assumed. In fact, it set the stage to legitimize and continuous, continue indefinite bulk collection of America's phone, record, or America's phone records. And from a constitutional standpoint, well, the court didn't even bother to delve into those issues. The second U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals merely found that the NSA program goes beyond what Congress authorized in Section 215 of the Patriot Act. That leaves the door open for Congress to authorize it. We hold that the text of Section 215 cannot bear the weight the government asks us to assign to it and that it does not authorize the telephone metadata program the ruling reads. We do so comfortably in the full understanding that if Congress <laughs> chooses to authorize such a far-reaching and unprecedented program, it has every opportunity to do so and to do so unambiguously. Until such a time as it does so, however, we decline to deviate from the widely accepted interpretations of well-established legal standards. Take careful note of the second part of the above excerpt. Congress has every opportunity to go ahead and authorize bulk surveillance. The court didn't say Congress couldn't create such a program. It just said that it hadn't yet. And despite finding it illegal, the court refused to end the program in light of the asserted national security interests at stake. That should give you some indication of the judge's view of the constitutional privacy issues versus national security. This comes as no surprise. Federal courts almost always give the federal government the benefit of the doubt when it asserts national security concerns. When the feds yell security, it inevitably trumps your rights. So the ruling does nothing to end the bulk surveillance program. 
The court merely punted the ball back to Congress, saying, We deem it prudent to pause to allow an opportunity for debate in Congress that may or may not profoundly alter the legal landscape. The bottom line is that bulk surveillance will continue, at least in the short term. And if Congress specifically authorizes it, bulk surveillance will continue in the long term. If Congress decides to authorize the collection of the data desired by the government under conditions identical to those now in place, the program will continue in the future under that authorization, the ruling said. If Congress decides to institute a substantially modified program, the constitutional issues will certainly differ considerably from those currently raised. If Congress simply extends Section 215 of the Patriot Act, the government will certainly appeal the Second Circuit ruling and bulk surveillance will continue, at least until the Supreme Court renders an opinion. And if Congress fails to do anything, the relevant sections of the Patriot Act expire in June. Bulk surveillance will continue in the long term under different authorities. Pretty much any way you slice this, bulk surveillance of Americans' phone records continues. What about the constitutional issues? Other than calling the issue complex, the Second Circuit basically dodged the question. It boggled the mind that a federal court would write an opinion on a case that involves spying on virtually everybody in the United States and not consider the Fourth Amendment ramifications. Yet we have this option void of any constitutional considerations. Even if the court's opinion were more substantive, it apparently doesn't matter to many establishment Republicans seeking to extend and even expand NSA's spy authority. The Second Circuit Court's ruling did nothing to slow the role of Republican Senate. Senate leadership. Senator Mitch McConnell indicated he would move ahead with reauthorization of 215 despite the ruling. As Judson Volts and Lauren Fox of the National Journal put it, to McConnell and his cohort, the ruling will not change their strategy. To renew the Patriot Act and oppose virtually any reform to the government's sweeping surveillance program. Senator Majority Whip John Corzine blew off the court's opinion completely. It strikes me as an outlier. The claims of some Republican surveillance hawks bordered on the absurd. Senator Pat Roberts of Kansas basically said, if the NSA can't spy on everybody in America, you will probably die. I think everybody's a privacy hawk, but it's a balance between our national defense. You don't have privacy if you're dead, he said. Judging by the rhetoric flowing down Capitol Hill, it seems highly unlikely that any of the various reform proposals will make it out of Congress. This court ruling was no victory. It won't end bulk surveillance. It doesn't address the constitutional issues, and it actually sets the stage for more spying. Once again, we find that the federal government is pretty useless when it comes to limiting limiting the power of the federal government. Well, yeah. First thing, (laughs) yeah, those judges aren't worth paying (laughs) as judges. No. And two, somebody needs to tell Senator Pat Roberts that everybody dies. Even if they're yeah, not spied well. on. <laughs> so, you know, between your government and my government, I'm not sure which is worse. I know, at I, least I our even... judges won't, would, don't tend to put out meaningless uh, rulings like that one is. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, it's, but, you that, know, don't That ruling forget basically you're, you're... comes down as... Uh, nothing to do with us. <laughs> Ask somebody else. That's basically what they're doing. I know. They're just passing the ball. Yeah. So they're just passing the ball. Um, that it's piece came as from. If they don't the... want to piss off the government. 
<laughs> yeah, no. The government doesn't want to make the government mad. Yeah. Um, that piece came from the Tenth Amendment Center blog. No, we can attempt to nullify illegal rules by the government. You should go check them out. I haven't talked about them in a while. I still support them. I still think they do good work. I love the Off Now program. I think that's great to decline material support to the NSA. Yeah. I, I love it. I think more people should get behind it. Um, and the only way we're going to be able to change things, I think at this point, is to ensure that they don't have what they need to do what they're going to do. And the 10th Amendment Center is really trying to make that happen. So... Well, if you last agree, week, last week's show you mentioned the scrambling uh, apps for phones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can get similar for your computer communications, mm-hmm. and and then they can spy all they want. But <laughs> well, I mean, encryption is important. Scrambling is important. Make it as hard as possible for them. Yeah, but, well, I mean that—that's—that's that's the major thing. The, the, the major tech companies. Mm-hmm. Well, I would say they're on our side, but that's not true. They're on their side. <laughs> they're on the side of making money, and they're losing to be money. On our side. So yeah, they're bringing in the wrong encryption stuff, which, well, the U.S. government's been trying to block. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah. Because, yeah, communications companies, funnily enough, want people to communicate. If everybody thinks they can't communicate privately, people stop using that form of communication. Yes, they do. This is what has happened in history. Mm -hmm. And then they start meeting in dark parking garages underground. Like during Watergate, for God's sake. This is really sad. The only safe technology anymore is old technology, and that's meeting someone face-to-face in a place where there is no surveillance. Oh, no, there are fantastic ways of uh, meeting in in parks. Mm -hmm. Um, You do need some technology with you, but you're outdoors Mm -hmm. in the open air at least, rather than a dark, dingy, you know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you need stuff to mask your... Signals. Speech and uh, yeah. you need to Noise. not have line of sight for lip readers and stuff like that. But yeah, meeting outdoors is perfectly possible. Just a lot harder. Basement's realize, easier. <laughs> do you realize how incredibly paranoid this sounds? And the I worst don't think part it sounds is, paranoid. It's... you know, I read all the stuff about what the military get up to. Oh, I know. What I'm saying <laughs> is, it sounds incredibly paranoid to people, but. We wouldn't sound like this if there weren't a reason for it. We go into the reasons for it every single week. Yeah. There are things you the can un- do to protect yourself. The unfortunate thing is uh, modern technology has made it easy for for spies, basically. Um, well, as far as this sort of thing goes. And we can make it hard for them again. Yeah. And and policing and spying, they're difficult jobs and they should be hard because they violate people's natural rights. 
That's why those jobs are so hard. That's why they're supposed to be well-paying jobs. You know, because it it takes a toll on the person doing it. Not just well-paying. I mean, my personal bugbear is most of the people doing these jobs don't receive nearly enough training in what they're doing. Well, hell, I was reading a story the other night was talking about um, the drone pilots in the (laughs) United States and just saying, you know, how many drone strikes are going completely off target from where they're going because these guys aren't getting the training they need. And I'm like, well, yeah, they don't know how to navigate, which is kind of important when you're flying something. Yeah. Uh, Jeannie, I know you're tech stupid, so they know everything about you. I gave you the link to an app last week and you said you were too busy to install it so <laughs> well I, that's okay I'm, I'm quite i'm tech savvy and they know lots about somebody in, in relation to me uh, um yeah i was talking about like I say, um, it's it's when it's if they look at my data they've then got to decide which of the bits of information is the real one <laughs> out of all the different ones i've used all over the place like I said, I, I think digital shadow was the most interesting <laughs> thing I had ever let loose on Facebook. I mean, I uninstalled it and then I wiped everything out of my computer after I did it. But I wanted to see what it knew about me. Didn't and it knew nothing. Me. I mean, this thing actually, <laughs> at the end, unleashes a code breaker to try and, and break your passwords. It couldn't break mine. So I am just paranoid enough for me. Yeah, my- I, I always find the password breakers hilariously funny because that's one of the f- <laughs> things I used to specialize in way yeah. long ago before the internet existed. I used to do data encryption. Right. And yeah, my passwords are not complicated. But they're not predictable. Because no. I, I use plain words and numbers and capital letters, but I don't use any of the funny characters. Right. But I, I combine the words and numbers in interesting ways. It's easy for me to remember. But it's almost impossible for somebody to guess well, or right. a program and, and to And that's called, I out. think it's called a passphrase. I mean, yeah. I, I think my favorite one was when they were in, interviewing Edward Snowden about it. And he said, um, well, nobody would ever guess the password that Margaret Thatcher is 110% sexy. Well, yeah. you're right. Because... Uh, but um, I also use words that aren't in common use so yeah <laughs> it, a lot of the automated systems for trying to guess passwords we'd never get them because they don't have a big enough dictionary um, <laughs> <laughs> well you know if you aren't a well read person um, it's going to be really easy to crack your passwords no just saying. Well, even now, I mean, password, one, two, three, four, five, six, and things like that are still the most common passwords you come across. ABC one even two three. Even with all I've the I've seen those. I've seen decades. people put them in at work, and I'm like, oh my god, how can you use that password? I, I don't mean to be standing over you and looking, but there's one computer. This is how we get our schedule. It tells us what we do every day, and what our job tasks are. And if I'm standing in back of you. I don't want to see what you're doing, but, you know, when I see you typing in ABC123, I'm horrified. Because yeah. if you're using that on a work system, what are you using at, on your home system? Yes. You know, what are you using on your phone? 
Well, I've and been using this. You and I are friends. What can people tell about yeah. me from you? I've, I've been using the same iterations of passwords for the last decade. Mm-hmm. And I've never been. Okay, I've. Something like Lenny, who want to hack me, but I've never had any sort of breach. The only breaches where I've ever had to change my password usually involves companies having security breaches. Oh, yeah. All our password database was leaked. Yeah. Well, did you see? <laughs> did you see? Um, <clears throat> what happened last week was it a Baltimore suburb, um, where their digital bulletin boards got hacked. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? No. Um. So there's there's an there's an internet phenomenon where there's a a man who's showing the world his nether regions. Yes. Yeah. So that got hacked and put on a few of the digital bulletin boards that are outside in the really nice areas of Baltimore, and people just really freaked out. Yeah, it happens a lot. And, and the worst part is, afterwards, security experts started looking at the system and said, they, they st- yeah, they got rid of the offensive picture, but this company still hasn't bolstered their security enough yeah. that you couldn't walk by with your phone and change what's on these fucking billboards. Yes. So that's also a problem. Companies not taking security seriously screws you up too. Well, (laughs) people stealing internet is really, really common these days. Because so many of these... um, How can I describe them? Stupid consumers (laughs) um, buy a new wireless router and don't change the password oh, and use God. admin username and password. They just oh. leave it at the factory default. And of course, any brand you can go online and go, what's, what's the what's the factory um, password password for that router? And, and just find it. Yeah. It's easy. It's it doesn't even require brain I, I got brain free internet power. in Edinburgh for three months doing that. Because I lived in a street that was um, best described as, well, it's the, the politest term would be chavish, if you know what a oh chav my is. God, I know what a chav is. I yeah. know what a chav is. I don't know what anybody else does, but it's I know exactly what they are. The only place I to are. live at that point. So, yeah, I, I was surrounded by, well, let's face it, you didn't really want to go out at night unless you were it, in a group. They're, they're kinda, <laughs> the police station they're, they're, got attacked. I don't want to say they're the dregs of humanity, but they're not. They're not the kind of people you'd want to bring to a vape meet. No. Well, I say, about halfway through my stay at that address, yeah, the the police station, which was about two hundred yards away, was under siege from local gangs, as it were, because one of their number got arrested, and the police That's... station got. Attacked. <laughs> so yeah, you didn't want to go out at night. Yeah. Unless there's a lot of you. Yeah. No, they're. Uh, That's they're, okay. They're, they're fine. They're dominant. You'd still learn their internet. So. They're, they're interesting folks. Put it that way. Yeah. Uh, interesting folks. Not. I don't. I don't mean to put down Chev culture? Is that even a word? Oh, no, no, no. You can put it down all you like. I, I really don't mind. <laughs> uh, and they don't but, mind, because they aren't going to be listening. 
That's true. There's heads to go out and bust, and drinking to be done. Well, you're not you're not doing celebrity news, so you know they're not going to listen in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's, you're not that's talking good. about uh, vajazzles, so. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> you can look it up afterwards. I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing I don't want to. Probably not. Okay. I think it's just a, a, a fairly small British phenomenon, the jazz line. But, yeah. <laughs> just, that doesn't involve a bedazzler, does it? Doesn't involve a what, sorry? A bedazzler. No. It involves sparkly things and pieces of anatomy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that was that was a first. I can guarantee you we've never talked about this before. <laughs> I hope we never talk about it again. <sighs> okay. So, um, after that disturbing last bit, advert. Why spend hours searching for in-stock ammunition when you can use AmmoSeek.com? AmmoSeek.com is a search engine for finding ammunition, reloading components, magazines, and guns for more than 300 calibers at more than 60 online retailers. AmmoSeek.com only shows items that are in-stock and readily available for shipping. You can search by caliber, grains, manufacturer, and more. The results are displayed by cost per round, so you are able to get the very best pricing on your ammunition of choice. Find ammunition at the best prices, fast. Amoseek.com. Thanks for listening, guys. Have a good night. It was good to see you, Jeannie. Um, have fun in Erie. We'll see you all next week. Good night.